Good morning. How are y'all doing? My name's Pastor Abby Todd. I'm the pastor at the church at Haynes Creek. We're a campus of First Baptist Church. This is the second annual No Longer Strangers Conference. Yeah. The title or the, the name of the conference comes from Ephesians, and that was our passage last year. Uh, but we're going to pick a different passage. Actually, the, the idea for having another conference come, came from Matt Abel at Trinity Presbyterian. After last year's conference, he asked me, he said, are you going to do another one? And I said, I didn't really think about it. He's like, you know, you could replicate this. You just do another passage every year. I was like, that's actually pretty good. Um, and so here we are. We kept the name. But our passage this morning is from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. I think we're going we're gonna, to, the reason the issue of race, and we're not just talking about race, but the reason the issue of race is really sensitive in our community and in our country is because of things from our past as well as the fact that we really don't like to stare sin in the eye. It's ugly. Our community is divided. And I, you may have another definition of that than I do, but the reason I believe that I can say that, I've met some people that get offended when I say that the community is divided. You know how I know that the community is divided? It's full of sinners. And we alone... And by we, I mean the church, have what it takes to unite people under the banner of Jesus Christ. The issue of race is extremely complicated. But in the end, ultimately, it's not that complicated. We're going to speak about some sensitive subjects here uh, today, but we're going to do so not in fear. I haven't been given a spirit of fear been given a spirit of power and love with the scriptures. We should all, of all people, Christians should be able to speak to the issue of race because we have been given the oracles of God. And so today, we're going to celebrate that there's not two peoples of God. There's not three peoples of God. There's one people of God. And how radical that was when Jesus said, I've got people of another fold you don't even know about, but here's what you do need to know. It's one flock and there's one shepherd. And so I wanted to begin our conference in the, the most appropriate way we could, which is by reading Scripture and then praying. So I wanted to read from our passage. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Before I begin... We're getting ready to read about kind of an awkward situation. You've got the apostle to the Jews and the apostle to the Gentiles, and they are colliding. Imagine if you were a fly on the wall to witness what we're getting ready to read. I mean, you've got two of the most titanic figures in the Bible, and one is calling out the other for not walking in step with the gospel. Talk about awkward. But as only Paul could... As we're called to, he does it in love, and he does it in truth. And that's why I believe this passage really unlocks the key for our community in how to deal with issues of race. So let's read. 
But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's pray. Father, we have been reconciled to a holy God by the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, you sought us. You overcame the differences. You destroyed the hostility and you did it in Christ on the cross. And Father, it's the unconditional love of Jesus which fuels our love of neighbor today. Father, at this conference this morning, as Crawford comes up, Father, I, I just I thank you for the the gospel for, the, for your church, for the ability to gather today in a nation that is so imperfect, but, Father, that has so many things that, that, that aid us in gathering freely in your name. Father, with the political freedom we have, I pray that we conduct this conference this afternoon, not simply for a social cause, not because we're pointing at some group we don't like. Father, I pray that from the words of our mouth that your name be magnified and that your son Jesus may be lifted high. And all these things we ask in your precious son's name, amen. I want to introduce our speaker this morning. His name is Crawford Loritz. I'm saying that right. You are far too humble, brother. Um, he is the pastor at Fellowship Roswell. He has been the pastor there since 2005. And his accolades are far too numerous to go in detail. But I'll tell you this. There are two books we've been giving out. I didn't realize till this morning his name is in both of them. Um, the, the yellow book with Dr. King's face on it is edited by Crawford's son, Brian, and Crawford contributes a chapter in that book. That book um, is, is an excellent, I, I, I encourage you to read it. And actually, Bloodlines, Piper's book, Crawford's name's on the back, is recommending the book. But that's not why we had him come. We had Crawford come, we asked him to come because he is a pastor because he's been in Atlanta a long time and he's not only speaking to you as a fellow sinner, he's actually speaking to you as a, fel a fellow Georgian. And we thought that was important because Atlanta is a unique context and we wanted someone who could be a local in some sense. He is a faithful husband, he's a good father, and he is a, a good pastor. 
And so without any further ado, Crawford, if you'd come and deliver God's word to us this morning. Let's give him a hand. Well, thank you so much, and uh, it is indeed a joy and a delight to be here with you. Uh, I'm impressed that y'all get up on Saturday morning to come out to hear something like this. I mean, it's, uh, it, it really is impressive. Let me get something out of the way real quickly. How many of you are still sleepy? Now, just tell the truth. You, you're tired, okay? Well, here's the deal. Um, if you're sleepy, I want to encourage you, go ahead and go to sleep. I've slept on the best of them, so what goes around comes around, and... Uh, <laughs> You know, we got room here. This You can lay out on the floor or whatever and just help yourself. But let me encourage you not to do one of these two things. If you're sleepy, just don't fight it. Uh, pastors, you know what I'm saying? You, know, you ever preach to people to fight and sleep? It's awful. Just release them, you know. Don't, but don't, don't do like this. That's distracting. And uh, by all means, don't do like this pretending as if you're praying or reading. Now we got character issues. That's lying. So just, you know, just go ahead. Go ahead and, and somebody summarize what was said, and that'll be fine. So I am thrilled uh, beyond measure um, um, with the fact that you all are doing this here um, for many reasons. You know, uh, um, one of my great concerns over the last 10, 15 years about those of us who claim to be Bible-believing pastors and leaders and this kind of thing, typically, and this is to our shame, we're answering questions that nobody's asking anymore. We tend to be 10, 15, 20 years behind the times. And the, the culture and the world is waiting for moral, courageous, incarnational leadership. Not, not just talk and not just... Uh, denunciation, but the visible representation of where the culture needs to arrive. And, uh, and I'm going to step into this here. I, have, I don't have a dog in the fight here, but, but the divisiveness that we're now seeing in our culture, um, the estrangement that we're now experiencing in our culture, hang in there, I really believe has been orchestrated by God. I happen to believe that he's saying now there is a moral vacuum here. There is cultural dissonance like you have never seen before. Uh, there's radical inconsistencies that you've never seen before. But I actually think he's saying to the church, uh, yeah, but I've created that so that you might be the visible alternative to what needs to take place. So rather than getting in a spitting contest and, and us, you know, siding with one side or the other, uh, we've got to be that noble body of Christ uh, that, that not only speaks to it, but models it as well. And let me just say this, and this is all fodder for setting up what, some of the things I want to say. Uh, the other thing is, too, I, I think we need to be very, 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 very careful of, of uh, getting backdoored into allowing the culture to define our Christianity. Uh, being too associated with one political party or another. And I didn't say that you didn't have your favorites, and that, that, is, that is fine, and I, I don't have a dog in that fight. However, we have got to be very careful of assuming that Fox News or CNN or MSNBC 
we got to be very careful of assuming that although they, they represent a piece of what we might believe, they don't represent all that we believe. And so to, to have a decidedly biblical worldview means that the Bible is not just a point of reference, but the Bible is the context by and through which we live our lives, which of necessity will mean that we, 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 we cannot be completely pigeonholed by any group in society. We're going to be too conservative for some liberals and too liberal for some conservatives. Why? Because the truth of the gospel is where we side with. And we cannot be typecast, and we got to be careful that we, we don't assume that a certain party represents all that we believe. They may represent a huge portion of it, but not necessarily everything. And so having said that, I think this sounds crazy. I actually think that this is a defining moment for us, and this could be the precursor for revival. Another thing that I'm saying preliminarily here to set this up, I, ask, I also think that God is giving us another opportunity to address the national besetting sin of our nation. And not just to write blogs about it, not just to preach about it, but to model what it means uh, to be whole and complete, and to model what it really means to stand for righteousness. I actually believe, and I, this is an expression, I was at, um, uh, in a panel at the uh, King 50th, the Gospel Coalition and ERLC put this together in Memphis last, last year, the 50th anniversary of King's assassination. And in the panel, um, someone asked me, well, Crawford, where do we go from here? And I said, I, I want to be kind in my response. I want to be very kind. Uh, I think the more appropriate question for us to ask is not necessarily where do we go from here, but the more appropriate question to ask is why haven't we gone from here? Uh, and this is a time of holy impatience. Um, because the nature of racism and all of these other things, and I know that there's cultural milieu, and I know that there's a learning curve, and we've got to be patient with one another, and there are things that all of us have to unravel. I get that. But when you understand that racism and all of these things, you put it in the sin category, it's nothing more than the sin of partiality with pigmentation. And when you put that where it belongs, you understand that you know, God is urgent about overcoming sin. You, 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 don't, you, don't, you don't incrementalize your way out of that. You repent of it. And you do what you need to do to overcome it. But for whatever reason, our nemesis has been to qualify it, justify it, uh, 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 somehow or another, make it sin with a small s. Uh, it's been all of that. But I actually believe that right now is a time for us to have holy intolerance about that. And I think pastors, uh, those of us who uh, pastor in churches and, and people who, who refuse to get over that sin of partiality are candidates for church discipline. So, with all of that fodder, um, there, there, there are some things on my heart here uh, 
It's a little bit about my background. Um, people ask me all the time, what, you know, why are you concerned about these issues and, and how, do you, how did you get here? Well, part of that has to do with sovereign foundations that I have nothing to, I didn't have anything to do with it. I was born in uh, the central ward of Newark, New Jersey. My parents were a part of the Great Northern Migration. You know, the, some say that that Great Northern Migration began taking place at the tail end of Reconstruction, really, but it accelerated during World War I and went all the way through World War II and into the early 50s, where, where literally hundreds of thousands of African Americans made their way from the South to, uh, to uh, larger metropolitan areas up North, um, running from Jim Crow and all these other things and, and trying to find work and this kind of thing. My, my parents, they were born, born and raised in North Carolina, and in 1942, my father played ball in the old Negro Leagues, and uh, he had a coal mining accident and lost his right eye. And, and then our family, they, they moved to northern New Jersey, Newark, New Jersey. But all of us kids were born in the central water of Newark, New Jersey. Well, back in the 50s and up through the mid-60s, the central water of Newark, New Jersey was multi-ethnic. Uh, it's hard for people to believe that. But it was, and a lot of cities were like that. It was, it was multi-ethnic. I mean, I played ball with John San Giovanni and Rocco Bonavice, as well as with Gerald Adams and Lloyd Cotton and stuff. And we were in, out of, in, 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 inside and outside of each other's apartments and, and all of this stuff. And so I grew up uh, with these two streams in my life. On one hand, I knew who I was. My father told the stories of my great-grandfather, Peter, who was a slave. I understood who I came from, where I came from. I went to church at Trinity AME Zion Church in the corner of Wilson Street and Warren Street there in Newark. But, we all, but I also um, played little league ball with, with people who were different from me, and we, we interacted together and this kind of thing. So I grew up um, uh, with the belief that, I, you know, I'd have to choose who I loved and who my friends would be. Uh, and so that was a foundation in my life that, that helped me through some stormy times later on. Uh, today I pass a church that is multi-ethnic. Uh, uh, in 2005, we came to Fellowship Bible Church, and uh, it was about 90, 98% white. And, um, and when I got there, I mean, you know, the, the, the news media, it's a fairly sizable church, and so the news media and the, the Journal of Constitution made a bigger deal out of it than... In fact, it got a little bit distracting because um, I was not there primarily. My calling was not there to make some type of statement of integration or this kind of thing. I felt called to preach the word of God and to love the people. And, and if we did that in an authentic way, then diversity would take place. And by the way, let me just encourage you by saying be very careful of making diversity the core of the gospel. It is the outcome of the gospel. And so you have to be careful of that, that somehow or another, uh, you wave that flag and it encompasses that. You know, the cross is over everything. However, I would say this, if you're preaching the cross and true to the scriptures, then you're going to be embracing that. So, you know, uh, so today our church is um, 70, the last survey, we did 74% white and 26% African-American, and we have fellowship in Espanol there, uh, this kind of thing, and we're, we're more diverse than the community that we're in, and uh, usually the rule of thumb, they say, is uh, uh, 
if if you're if no minority, if no group in the church is more than more than 80% of the congregation, then there's authentic diversity that's there. That tends, tends to be the, the deal. So having said all of that, um, on my heart, and I am going to get to the Galatians text, uh, but on my heart, I, I want to I just talk a little bit about uh, cultivating a multi-expression of the gospel, or putting it this way, uh, four pillars of gospel diversity. Four biblical pillars of gospel diversity. I think sometimes we get in these discussions and we want to navigate toward how-to. Now, how-to is very important. It is very important, uh, the transactional, applicational stuff. But I think what is, what is missing in some of our discussions is, is a healthy, robust theology of why we do this. No, it's not trendy. It is not something that we need to do here in the United States because of where we are historically. That, that, that may be a mandate, um, but this is something that's always true. This always been true. The emphasis of the scripture, where God is going, this has always been true. Uh, there is a visible expression that he wants to make in human history that God is not racist. He chose the nation of Israel, not because he was racist, but because he wanted to choose a people who would be a model of what, of what a relationship with God would look like, and then would invite others to join in that relationship. And so these, these things have always been consistently true. And so here are these four pillars. I mean, there may be more. You listen to preachers all the time. We've got five or six. There's probably more than five or six, but probably more than four. But these are the four, um, I would say, New Testament pillars of, of, of diversity, of gospel diversity. The first one is this, is that, and that is, and I'm going to put them in propositional form and that is that we have to become a visible representation of the destination. And I want to summarize, this is the whole thing of ecclesiology or the nation, nature of the church. The reason why God has the church in the world today is because God is into incarnation. The church is not to reflect what is. It is not to reflect society. The mandate theologically of the church is to introduce in human history the destination at which all of human history is going. It is a body of people to do that. Now, there's this, there's this classic text over in Revelation chapter 7. John has this uh, great vision of heaven, and he says in verse 9, And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in his hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before um, before the throne and worship God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. This great multitude, great multitude standing before God, standing before the throne. Every tribe, every nation standing before him. Again, I'm, this is just a thumbnail sketch here, but 
theologically and biblically, the church is to be that visible representation of where things are going to end, of where they're going to end. That this is going to be heaven. It is the hope and power of the gospel to do that now. Now, some would say, well, Crawford, come on now, that, that's, that's heaven, that's the future, uh, that's not our reality. And let me say parenthetically right now that uh, this is going to shock you, <laughs> probably surprise you. I don't necessarily believe that every church needs to be multi-ethnic. If that were the case, then what are you going to do with uh, somebody that's out in Jablip, Montana, where there's, you know, that, that ain't going to happen. Um, I don't think every church needs to be multi-ethnic. I, I don't think, you know, you, 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 what are you going to do in the continent of Africa? What are you going to do in these, you know, I don't think they need it necessarily. However, I do think and believe that every church needs to reflect who's ever in their community. That's the mandate. That's the mandate. And wherever that can take place, it is mandated to take place. There's not a church, by the way, in the New Testament. Now, hear me on this. There's not one church in the New Testament that is not multi-ethnic. Not one. And I would argue there was much more of a challenge back then than it is right now. Now, you think about it. In Paul's strategy, for example... When Paul went to, on his missionary journeys, when he, went to, when he went to these different cities, he had a sevenfold strategy. I won't get into all that he did, but the top two things that he did, the first thing that he did, he went to the synagogue, right? He preached the gospel in the synagogue, and the Jews got saved. Then he went out to the Agora, the marketplace where the Gentiles hung out, and the Gentiles got saved. Now, you, you have to understand the, 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 you talk about the racism and, and separation, the separation between the races back then, it was, it, was, it was huge. But you know what Paul did? He didn't incrementalize them getting together. And by the way, the longest he ever stayed in any place at all was, uh, was about two years. He didn't incrementalize this at all. He... When the Jews got saved and the Gentiles got saved, they didn't exchange choirs. They didn't exchange speakers. They didn't grease the tracks because, you know, you got to understand they have all this cultural baggage back here and they're separated. And, they're, you know, there's, just, there's some issues right there. You put them together right there, you know. And what about styles of music? And what about this kind of thing? I mean, you just, you just take it slow. He didn't do that. When they got saved, he did? Immediately. Immediately he put them together. I mean, there's no cotton and cushion or, or transition immediately. Because when Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. He believed, yes, there are cultural differences. Yes, it's messy. Yes, we have to work through this. Yes, people are going to be offended. Yes, we have to resolve issues. But their culture and heritage and condition is not greater than the power of the gospel. And so it was real to him. And he understood that this visible model of people coming together not only forecast heaven, but it said something to folks looking at them. What? How is this working? 
What is this all about? You see, when culture A comes to Christ and culture B comes to Christ, it doesn't create culture C. When culture A comes to Christ and culture B comes to Christ, A becomes A primed. And B becomes B primed. And is that primed position that is the focal point of unity becomes greater than. So the very first pillar is this. You, you got to make up your mind that we have to be a portrait of the desired destination. The calling of the church is not to reflect the market interests of its constituents. That's not our primary calling. The calling of the church is, 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 is present but also prophetic. We have got to declare, not just by our words, but by our actions, by who we are, by our decisions, and by courageous leadership. We believe in the power of the gospel to transcend backgrounds, ideas, philosophies, patterns of behavior, all of that. If God can raise a dead Jesus, then he can give all of us a new beginning. So the very first pillar of gospel diversity has to do with, with, with becoming a visible representation of the destination. That's what it's all about. You're going somewhere as a church, so we need to act like it. The second thing is, is that we need to embrace and live out who we are. Our identity. I get a little frustrated with uh, some people who preach and teach on reconciliation because I think we, we start at the wrong place. What do you, what do you mean by that? We, we start with reconciliation as something that needs to be accomplished. Now, don't get me wrong. They're, 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 you, know, you do need to be reconciled with broken relationships and go back and fix that up and straighten out those problems and be adjusted and all of that. But when it comes to the gospel, reconciliation is an accomplished reality. And so the calling for us is, um, as believers, the calling primarily is not to pursue racial reconciliation so much as it is to live out what has been declared about us. Now look at that great text in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at uh, uh, verse 13. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has, broke, and has broken down and has broken down and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The wall has been taken down by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. No, you have been reconciled. If you said yes to Jesus Christ, 
you have been placed in this holy community and you've been reconciled. You've been reconciled. Now the point is this, it's an identity statement. You have to live out who you are. It's sort of like, I got two older sisters, when I was growing up, <laughs> my parents were going out, uh, my dad would say this to all of us, but he would be particularly looking at me. He would say, all right, this Jones coming over to watch y'all. Now listen to me. Don't you get no brain cramp. You know how to act. And then he would look straight at me and say, remember, your last name is Loritz. Act like it. And that's what Paul is saying here. No, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. Time. We're going to get to this in the, in the fourth pillow here. He said, no, 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 time. No, 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 no. You, you've been reconciled. And your identity ought to change your behavior. It ought to change how you think. It ought to change how you see things. Now, this is the truth about you. This is the truth about you. This is the truth about the community of God. We have been reconciled. We have been reconciled. So the question is not, not getting to be reconciled, but how do I live out this identity? You're my brother. You're my sister. Now, we might treat each other like dogs. We might be dysfunctional as all get out, but we're related. And that's not some motivational statement. That's not some superficial, you know, thing to please people. No, that's true. That's true. We have been to Calvary. And that's our new point of reference. You know, Paul says something. We, there's a remarkable, stunning verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We talk about verse 14 all the time, you know, and then over you know, Christ, and then down verse 17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, and this kind of thing. But verse 16 says, from now on, know we no man according to the flesh. And the context there is that he's talking about the body. That the, 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 that the cross literally, the cross literally is the point of reference for all of life, all of relationships, all of it. And so as we think about these issues of race and we think about differences and all of this, one of the things that we can't erase or erode is the fact that we belong together. We're in the body. And by the way, I say to, to, to folks, hey, look, I, again, I don't, I don't export my calling. And if you're in a community that is not necessarily diverse, it's kind of, you reach the people who are there. However, don't let your folks get off the hook altogether. Don't make these arrogant assumptions that somehow or another we're better than folks. Don't start throwing stones at one another because we're related to each other. We're related to each other. We've got to make this thing work. We've got to make this thing work. And that's Paul's point here in Ephesians 2. He begins, actually, I don't want to get sidetracked here. He begins, um, um, 
He begins by saying, hey, look, you know, this is what he's done for us individually. You, you know, and, and, and you came to him individually. Now, uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. But now he says, get to verse 11 and following, no, this, you, this is what this corporate reality has to tell the truth about what he's done for you individually. Your church, my church, the folks in the church there, our community has to tell the truth about Christ's transformative work individually. It has to tell the truth about that. And again, we can't be hijacked. Our behavior needs to reflect our gospel identity and not our preferences or the norms of the culture. You got to stop that. See, that's an insidious form of worldliness. An insidious form of worldliness. It's to allow our behavior to be dictated by the norms of society and the norms of culture and the values of folks all around us. We are pace setters. This is who we are. We're not embarrassed by it. I'm not embarrassed to be seen with my white brothers and sisters. I'm not embarrassed by that at all. They're my brothers and sisters. And neither should you be embarrassed to be seen with me. We don't walk away from people. We're related. And it's time that we start living out this degree of moral courage. You're not betraying one another. I said this to my son. I, I said that uh, you know, he was uh, his oldest son, Brian, now, and he pastors a diverse church. In fact, our youngest son pastors a diverse church in, 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 in Nashville. But when Brian went to undergraduate school, um, he called home one day and we were talking about something, and, and, uh, and he told me an experience that he had. He, uh, he was in a library studying uh, and sitting at a table with some of his white friends. A couple of black students came in and saw him there sitting with some of his white friends. And so the dude said to him, hey, Loritz, man, what are you doing, selling out? And I know my son, I said, all right, all right, what'd you say? And uh, I said, Dad, I told him what you told us growing up. I said, what's that? So I turned around and told him, nobody tells me who my friend should be, nobody. And it's time that we begin to exercise this courage. You're not betraying your heritage. How, 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 how superficial is that? How thin is that? You, you can't have other friends and be loyal to who you are. That's ridiculous. You can appreciate your heritage, your background, where you came from, celebrate that, fight for justice and all this other kind of thing without demeaning or discarding or pushing other people aside. You can do that. But this is who we are. We're to shine as lights in the world. And unfortunately, what breaks my heart is that our churches, this is terrible. We have a terrible heritage. We've allowed people to use us for their agendas, to manipulate us, rather than us declaring what the kingdom agenda is all about and paying the price through our unity, whatever it takes to demonstrate the fact that we are the, indeed the body of Christ. And so we need to embrace and live out who, who we are. The third pillar of gospel diversity, number three, is that we need to cultivate and, and express an uncommon love. Cultivate and express an uncommon love. 
Now, if you've been around church for a while, and I think pastors here, you've probably preached on this text and maybe better messages than I could ever put all. But John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, the context of this, this is the uproom discourse. As you know, many scholars believe that Jesus is preaching his own eulogy. He's summarizing here in the upper room discourses, John 13 through 16, some would include 17. He's summarizing everything that he had taught his disciples in three and a half years that he'd been with them. The shadows of this new community, the shadows of, this, of the church is, is, is behind everything that he's saying. So you come to verses 13, uh, chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Oh. Parenthetically, that the question new commandment, that it's not that it was new in the sense that love had never been commanded before. Love is throughout the Bible, Old Testament, chesed, God's loving kindness, and all that's it's all throughout the scriptures. But new in the sense, now hear me on this, new in the sense that love would be the distinguishing characteristic and mark of this thing called the new community. It would be the calibrating differentiation of this thing called a new community, of this thing called a church. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, and then the emphatic, even as I have loved you. And then by this, shall all men know that you are my disciples. Not just because you're theologically accurate and you, you got insights and you, 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 know, you don't believe in this issue, you believe in that issue, these are the churches, that is the, no, 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 no. The way they're going to know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, I don't want to get it too, too, too granular here, but the word love that he uses here is a Greek word, agape. It is interesting that he does not use phileo, but he uses Agape. Now, I know, I know that in, in our desire to explain words, sometimes we, 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 we rape them of their full impact. And I think we've done that with agape. What is agape? Well, that's God's unconditional love. So, whoa, 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 whoa. Defining agape is akin to trying to define uh, holiness and God's glory. They go beyond human description. Uh, holiness, for example, who? How can a finite human being begin to articulate the proactive purity of God? It's ridiculous. Same thing with glory. How do you begin to describe the manifest presence of God? And so it is with agape. Agape is not just God's unconditional love. It is a supernatural love that is foreign to human experience. And I think what he's saying here, by this, all men should know that you're my disciples. When they look at your background, they see how different you are. They say, ain't no way in the world these folks should be able to get along. Look at where they came from. There's no common chemistry here. A bunch of dysfunctional dudes. A whole lot of mess in your life. What has made the difference? This supernatural love. And this love recalibrates my outlook on people. Let me give you a practical illustration of this. Uh, 
Back in 1996, I bought uh, it was a brand new car I, had, I bought, and uh, I've bought new cars since then. Uh, but this car was, um, I, I, I loved it and whatever, whatever, that's beside the point. I was, I was taking my son, youngest son, to school, um, Creekside High School, living on the south side of Atlanta at the time, and, and uh, uh, I dropped him off, and there was, and I was on my way to my office, and uh, Highway 29 was being worked on there, and they had these temporary stop signs, but it was a crowded mess there in the morning, because she had... Bear Creek Middle School and Creekside High, and everybody was turning in there and going to work, and this is rush hour and what have you. Well, <clears throat> there's a long line um, of cars, and you know these people. Some, some, some. This guy probably didn't have forgotten about the the temporary stop sign. Long line of cars. Well, it came my turn to pull out. Well, this guy had whipped around the back, his way around. But by the time he got to me, he's probably going 50, 60 miles per hour, and he hit me hit my car. Now, you need to remember, he hit me, okay? And uh, if he had hit me this much further back, I would be in heaven. But he hit the car, airbag go off and this kind of thing, and, uh, uh, and I get out of the car. Well, when I get out of the car, this guy starts calling me. He said, he said you dirty black SOB. He started dropping the N-word on me. And all this stuff. Now, I got to tell you, I'll be totally transparent with you. You know, I love the Lord, but when he started dropping those names, I said, I'm thinking to myself, are you crazy? Did I miss something? You hit me, man. And I started walking to him. I said, who are you talking to? And I actually, you know, we were going to fellowship. Uh, <laughs> it was like. Yo, dude, you, you're going to kill me, man. You're going to call me a black SOB and talk about my mama. and all. I don't even know you, man. And uh, it's a long story. I, I won't get into all the detail of that. But what, what it, eventually what happened was, uh, uh, of course, Karen, my wife was notified, and she came. And, um, and in fact, she, when she saw the car, she was scared to death. She thought, because she, she didn't see me first. And, but I was fine. I was okay. Uh, and I got in the car, you know, and I'll never forget what I said there. I said, sweetheart, you know, I've written a couple of books and a bunch of other stuff, and, you know, I've got average intelligence, some education and stuff. I said, you know what? And I said this too, and I just want to be transparent with you. To white folks, you're just a nigger. Just another nigger. And as soon as I said those words, here's my point. As soon as I said those words, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. He said, Crawford, you know that's not true. Dennis Rainey would never call you that. Josh McDowell would never call you that. Tim Cash would never call you that. Bill Bright would never call you that. Steve Douglas would never call you that. Your high school roommate, Bill Tarr, would never call you that. Well, these are white brothers that I was in relationship with, and we loved each other. The power of love recalibrated my thinking. Error is always increased with distance. When, you're, when you don't live in community with people, you will draw, you will draw crazy 
caricatured dis, uh, conclusions about people, and because, and then, then it's reinforced. One of the great problems of churches that are monoethnic, if I can use that expression, or homogenous, one of the problems that they have by its very nature, when you just have one ethnic group that you minister to or you're with, it enhances racism. Not intentionally, but you just, you, it enhances stereotypes. And we say to our church all the time, and say, look, 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 well, you know, to be a multi-ethnic church, I mean, you'll go in our services tomorrow morning, you'll see all different colors and this kind of thing. But, you know, we don't pat ourselves on the back because uh, true multi-ethnic church and true diversity is not who you sit next to on Sunday morning. It's not who you sit next to. But it's who you have dinner with. It's who you pray with. It's who you do life with. It's who you share your hearts with. It's the dynamic of relationship. And those relationships have a way, when, when people love you and you love them, it has a way of recalibrating how you think. You don't so quickly go to stereotypes and generalizations because you're doing life with them. And so this is another, this, is a, this I would say is the robust centerpiece. And if you have strategies around diversity and this kind of thing that does not centerpiece love, authentic love and relationship, that stuff's going to fizzle out. You're going to be disappointed. But that's how it's lived out. Now, the, the fourth and the final pillar is this. First, we need to become a visible representation of the destination. Secondly, we need to embrace and live out who we are. Thirdly, we need to cultivate and express uncommon love. But fourthly, we need to confront and correct injustice. You have to speak up. You have to speak up. By the way, I'm preaching this message tomorrow morning on human flourishing. For a long time, I, I have felt, and I am pro-life. Uh, I hope I don't, but I am pro-life. I am pro-life. And I happen to believe to be a follower of Christ, you have to be pro-life. But pro-life does not mean, just mean that you're anti-abortion. Pro-life means that you're pro-life. Pro-life really means that you're for human flourishing. Uh, and it begins with, number one, the conceived must live. The living must be cared for, and the poor and oppressed and disenfranchised must be defended. And those are, those are the three streams in the Bible of human flourishing, and that's what it really means. Paul knew this, and we read this text over here in Galatians, Galatians 2. Um, Peter should have known better. And as you read this passage, you say, and Paul is very, very direct with Peter. I mean, he's very confrontational with him because Paul knew that Peter knew better. Peter had been given this great vision in Acts chapter 10. You know, God did a dramatic thing, and you know, Cornelius got saved and said, whatever I've claimed, don't call, don't, don't call common unclean. And, and, and Peter knew better. But we're complicated. Racism and preferences have a way of justifying themselves in this kind of thing. And, and Peter, Peter committed an oops. 
So here you have it in Galatians 2, beginning in verse 11. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Notice the intensity. So this, this ain't, I didn't put any cotton in this conversation. You knew better, buddy. This is one of your first rodeo. What as if God didn't dramatically do something in your life? You knew better. You knew better. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. And the reason why he did it, now here's the point. Fearing the circumcision party. Racism cannot exist without people pleasing. It cannot exist without people pleasing. Who are you afraid of? Whose opinion means more to you? And evidently, Peter wanted the imprimatur of his Jewish heritage. And so he was afraid. And fear will always make you duplicitous. Where do you get that from? Well, he says it right here, fearing the circumcision party, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically. Fear will always make you act in an inconsistent way. And by the way, the cure for fear is fear. In other words, if you fear God more than you do people, you'll always do the righteous and just thing. But Peter got distracted, and he feared him. But, uh, you know, this is remarkable. It's a, so that even Barnabas, the brother of encouragement, was led astray by their apostles. Loving Barnabas, filled with comedy. You know, he, he, was, he enjoyed people. He was an encourager. But even, even Barnabas got carried away by this. Oh, hold on, man. But then verse, verse 14 says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Racism is a gospel issue. It's a gospel issue. Where do you get that from? Well, remember what I read from, what we read from Ephesians 2. The wall has been broken down. And Paul was saying, how dare you demean people? How dare you, Peter? How dare you be dismissive of someone else? They were saved the same way you were saved. What do you mean pulling back from them? Why are you ashamed of your brothers? You're committing idolatry. Why? Because you're letting the party of the circumcision determine your actions. So in that regard, it is a denial of the truth of the gospel. So Paul confronts him. And, you know, again, I'm too old to do recreational speaking, okay? But this is the deal. This is the reason why this is a call to holy impatience on these issues. Now, you need to be patient with people to get there and the new patterns of behavior. I don't mean that, you know, God is patient with us. But in terms of the diagnosis of the, of the problem and of the issue, you know, come on, we need to stop that. 
And we help nobody by refusing to say that racism is sin and wrong. You don't help anybody by that. And Paul called him out. Paul called Peter out. Let me give a couple of uh, implications from what Paul said, and then I'll be done. I know I'm probably over time here. Uh, one is challenge the sin of partiality. That's what racism is. Challenge it. Challenge it in your children. Challenge it. Challenge it. Don't let, it, don't, 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 don't let people get away with that. It's not right. It's not right to, to be nasty and to say things about people. It's wrong. Don't, don't let it. It's wrong. And Paul modeled that. Secondly, give voice to those who can't speak. It's interesting, in context, Paul uses his role, his apostolic authority, to give voice to the ones that couldn't speak for themselves. Hey, Peter, you know, I mean, they're afraid to come at you, man, because they know that you're an apostle, right? Right? They know that, okay? You got all this volume of knowledge here. Look, buddy, I stand eye to eye and toe to toe with you, buddy, and I tell you, you're, you're wrong. And I'm speaking up for them. You, 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 you are marring the dignity of the image of God that's stamped on their souls. Don't do that, buddy. And then thirdly, uh, open doors and give opportunity. I think the spirit behind this confrontation is that, Peter, the only reason why God has given us authority, the only reason why God has given us any power and influence is not about us. It's not about kissing up to some little fraternity over here who wants to keep things the way they are. The only reason why he's ever given us power, privilege, opportunity is for us to use that to empower and release other people and to give them that platform. By the way, that's a definition of all leadership apart from any kind of, the only reason why you're a leader, the only reason why you're a leader, the only reason why you're a leader is not for the banquet, not for the accolades, not for the celebration, not for the thank you notes, not for the more money. The only reason why you are a leader is to empower other people to be everything God wants them to be. It's a sacred trust. So, in concluding my remarks, you say, what will it take? It's going to take leadership, fellowship, and stewardship. Meaning, number one, leadership is going to take shared power. We've got to speak to these issues and model them. It's going to take fellowship, that shared community. This is really marvelous, and I'm actually preaching to the choir, but I hope we will continue these dynamic relationships here. We need it. We need it for encouragement. We need it for, 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 for just balancing ourselves out. And then thirdly, when I say stewardship, it's shared responsibility and accountability. We need to be this. Um, I'm looking at my grandsons and my grandchildren now and just thinking about uh, the condition of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and what, what will be theirs. Will we be healthy? Will we live out the compassionate courage of our convictions? Or will we shrink back? You know, we can get the nickels and the noses and that kind of thing, and we'll just sort of rebrand what success looks like. Okay. Well, let me pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you for your goodness and grace in our lives, and we thank you for your power. We thank you for what you've done for us. You have been so good. 
But Father, we pray that you will help us. We need a Holy Ghost revival as never before. We need you to move in power. We need encouragement. We need your strength. So Lord Jesus, bless and help, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, brother. Let's give him a hand.